everybody. I'm Wendy Murdoch, and this is Webinars with Wendy. We're doing a series of webinars to help horse owners be better owners by educating you to a variety of topics. Uh, I, I guess that's what I'm doing. This is number 198. So I've been doing this for a little while. Um, and, <laughs> and the topics range everything from Surefoot to hoof health to what Emma's going to talk about tonight, I think, which is going to be really, really interesting. Um, we're always happy to take suggestions. Sometimes we can't get the guests you suggest, but then we try to ferret around and find somebody that kind of is going to fit the bill that will come on the show. Um, and just to tell you all, tomorrow I'm so excited because for the past nine months, I've been working to get Andy Foster on to talk about saddle fit. And he has agreed and we have finally worked out all the technology. He had to get a new iPad um, and he's gonna be on, we tested today and that was a really good thing we did that. So he will be on tomorrow, Tuesday on the 27th at one o'clock. So that's gonna be a fabulous webinar. I've known Andy for years and he's, he's, he's entertaining. Even if you don't learn anything, which you will, he's extremely entertaining and we have inside jokes. All right, tonight my guest is Emma Loftus from Australia. This is your fourth webinar. Right? Third. 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 Third with you. Yes. Third. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to have you back, Emma. I just I your 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 talks are always really stimulating and interesting and exciting and fun. I think so. the last one was a bit like, whoa, it went on. <laughs> <laughs> it was out there. That's You're okay. Fasten your you seatbelts, everyone. This yeah. one's gonna be a bit out so, there. Too. Emma, for people who may not know you, can you just give <laughs> them a, a little bit of your background so they kind of know where we're going? Sure. Uh, so my background uh, was initially in horse racing um, from the ages of 16 till not too long ago. Um, I moved over to Australia from the UK in 2009 and was still in horse racing then, but start, really wanted to look into a modality uh, to work on horses, work with horses to help them. And it was I attended Equitana in 2010 and signed up for some demos. And I watched the Tellington Touch demo and I watched uh, Craniosacral with Maureen Rogers and the Craniosacral one. I thought they were both great, but I really, that really resonated. So off I went and studied there. And um, then I just kept building up on my anatomy. Um, I started with equinology to further my anatomy, did dissections, um, but it was in 2015, I went to London. Uh, and came across a weekend workshop in biodynamic craniosacral therapy. And I've received that as a client and I was amazed at it. And um, yeah, I really wanted to do the course, but it was a lot of money. So I, I went back to Australia, worked like five jobs <laughs> and then signed up for the course in 2017 and graduated in 2019. Um, so I'm now qualified in humans and horses. You know, I, I just love the fact that you saw what, what hooked you and then you made it happen. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, I think that that, that it's kind of like, it's similar to my story. When I learned about Linda Tellington Jones, I made it happen that I started training with her. And, you know, I think it's so important for us to realize that when we are that intrigued about something, we will find a way to get it done. And um, mm. to just follow your passion. I think that's such an important message. You do just commit to it. And, you know, you end up somewhere not by mistake. It's like uh, a path you've chosen. And it was the best decision I made. Um, yeah. So it was sort of a lot of pointers along the way. 
um, uh, which I'll say I'll talk a little bit about as we go through the cranial rhythm as to why the biodynamic work. I feel really, it resonates for me anyway, and, I, and the horses love it too. <laughs> you're, you're, you're freezing just a tiny bit, so. Um, it Am has, I? Ah. Yeah, just, it, just a little bit. Like I hear your voice, but your face has stopped moving. <laughs> That's probably good. <laughs> <laughs> but just, um, just so you know, and if it gets really bad, I'll, I'll let you know. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. Yep. And, and so you're going to tell us that what's different about biodynamic cranial sacral versus what we think of as cranial sacral. Yes. Yes. Um, so obviously I've got a PowerPoint, so I will show you some slides, but sort of in a nutshell, the, the biodynamic model, how I was first introduced to it was obviously as a, as a paying client. And uh, it was actually through this osteopath who saw me and she was intrigued uh, about me working on horses. So she wanted to come out and watch. And I felt quite nervous because I really wasn't doing that much craniosacral at the time. You know, I was still starting out. This was like, I don't know, 2013 or something. And um, I had my hands on this horse and she said to me, why don't you start to take your awareness wider and think of the whole and then think of the horizon and um that really made sense to me so i i think sort of naturally i like to have a very wide perceptual awareness um but that's all i really sort of knew about it uh but i found that it helped me in my sessions and the study of embryology which is a big part of the biodynamic work which i know you you've studied and you like a lot um that intrigued me and I, uh, that the embryo is very much the archetypal presence in biodynamic work. So we really are orienting to forces that are present throughout life from conception, preconception, and they're very stable forces. And they're basically the forces that create form and life. Um, the cranial rhythm is the more sort of uh, surface rhythm that's quite variable. But I'll talk a bit more about that. So uh, initially, when I was studying like equine craniosacral courses, I studied with Maureen. I did a couple with Dr. Sandy Howlett. Um, I was like, I'm not very good at feeling the cranial rhythm. I thought maybe I can't do this. Maybe there's something wrong with me. <laughs> but I could sense something slower going on and this wider sort of um, feeling of something bigger happening. And so I think that's why I resonated more with the biodynamic work. Um, and on top of that, I was fascinated and obsessed with this stillness that horses would drop into. It was like something very primal and I just wanted more of it. You know, how do I learn to get still? How do I, they just drop into this deep stillness, like they go into, another place and I was like that's amazing I want more of that this so you, you know go. this is so fascinating <laughs> to listen to because I've I've lately been um I've gone back to heart math um oh beautiful right and so yeah. I have it on my phone and um I've like I've started using it again and it's when you and it's so interesting because another friend of mine just recently told me about you know HVR and all and so this sounds like this fits in with this whole thing that I happen to be recently exploring and it's really absolutely 
so much about being present and, and letting a heart flow, if you will, regulate the mental activity, you know, and as much as I've, I've done the work in the past and done meditations and things, I, I was surprised to find out how that I'm further away from it than I thought, if that makes sense. Yeah. But it probably wasn't disheartening to you. You just was like, that's great. I'm, I need to get into it. I need to get back to it. And, yeah, and, I, yeah. and so, um, and so I've been practicing and, it's, but it's about this presence and it's I, 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 this deep place that you're talking about. So somehow, as soon as you said it, it was like, oh, wait a second, that all fits with this whole heart math and mm. um, somehow, we, yeah. We could do a, a talk on the embryology of the heart because that is amazing. But anyway, let, let's talk about the CSF. <laughs> Yeah. We can always have you come back and do another one. It's, yeah. it's fine, you know. She gets onto like webinar 300. You know. <laughs> All right. So you want to screen share, right? Yeah. I okay. thought um, make, instead of people staring at my face, they can look at pictures. I'm going to make you co-host. That's the first step. Okay. So go to the green button at the bottom that says share mm. screen. Okay. Click uh -huh. on that. All right. Yep. There you go. And then okay. just start the slideshow and we're good. And just everybody um, as usual, if you have any questions, just pop it in the chat or the Q&A. Um, and if I feel like it's a good place to ask that question, I'll either stop Emma or if there's a pause, I'll introduce the question. Yeah, so I am mindful of the time. You don't want to go much, not don't you want to go to two hours. So just, you yeah. know, play some music or ring a bell or just, you know, okay. turn, my, turn my sound off and I'll stop. <laughs> Um, yeah, so this is, I'm just basically showing some images because to try and just explain the biodynamic work in five, 10 minutes, it's, it's pretty hard. Um, there's a lot of jargon in it. Um, but basically this, this quote here is from Franklin Sills, who wrote some amazing books on craniosacral biodynamics. Um, and he's, he's very much like to try and embody the fact that we're very polyrhythmic beings the human system is ordered into subtle quantum level bioelectric biomagnetic fields these are expressions of a deeper creative force at work so that's what we're orienting to and um when i went to london i couldn't sense any of those that very subtle it's very perceptual this work in its nature um and it it sort of links in with what you're saying about heart math Wendy, um, but this kind of toroidal field that is present in everything, um, in us, in horses, in tiny insects, in smaller animals, in birds. Um, but this, this is kind of this thing that's there always keeping us alive and keeping these, this creative force within us. And here's, here's uh, this was um, loaned to me by Edwina Gray, one of my teachers in London, who does equine biodynamic as well. So you can see how much bigger the horse field is. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and it's slower. It's slower than, than the rates that I'll bring up in a minute. It, it just seems slower and wider. Um, but that sort of gives you a, a, an idea. The heart field is huge. Yeah. Uh, yeah, to me, they're, they're, they're these amazing sensory beings. As you know, they, they don't just sort of feel with their nose, they feel with their whole body. 
when, you know, when they're in that. So in this picture, is the green and the purple different fields? Uh, yes, yeah, so we've got this, the purple field is like a big tidal body. Uh, that's a kind of big slower, imagine like fields within fields. And the green field is like a sort of a fluid body, a fluid matrix. And then you have obviously the physical body. But to me, these are only just a couple of fields. There are fields, more fields within the fields. <laughs> and we put horses in fields. <laughs> and we put them in fields, unless, unless you're in Australia and you put them in a paddock. Yeah. <laughs> so I thought I'd, um, here we go, talking about the cranial rhythm. So this is, this is generally what, uh, you know, anyone that studies craniosacral therapy or her, has heard of it, um, this is generally what the cranial rhythm or the CRI, the cranial rhythmic impulse is measured at. In humans, it's around six to 12 cycles a minute. In horses, it's eight to 14. Um, so these very cool people, Viola Fryman, um, uh, Norman St-Pierre, Richard Roppel, Ernst Retzlaff, John Upledger, they measured this um, in their studies because obviously you can imagine uh, craniosacral therapy, cranial osteopathy, even before that osteopathy was really thought of as this very wacky um, kind of modality, just hands-on, nothing's happening. How can, how, what are you talking about a cranial rhythm, you know, um, or that the skull moves. So they did measure it and it's, it's a tiny amplitude. So if you imagine that sheet of writing paper is a hundred that's even less. So how do we set, how do we feel it? Certainly in a very deep state. Have I frozen again? Yep, you're back. I'm back. So to, to sort of get a sense of it, you really have to, um, settle, um, really orient to your breath, uh, start to embody a, a sense of stillness. And it takes time. Well, it took me a long time, years. I, was, I had a very noisy head when I was first doing this. So I don't even know how anything happened. <laughs> but you mean, you know, when you, if you're ever at the dentist and they get you to bite on that paper or that that tiny piece of paper and you can feel the difference. That's, it's, it's thinner than that. The, the actual amplitude is even thinner than that. And um, so Upledger did a lot of work uh, studying uh, how it would change in people in a coma. And obviously it slows down quite considerably. Um, it can be sensed uh, or felt up to 20 minutes after the final cessation of breath and heartbeat slowly tapering off as the soul separates from the body that's taken from Hugh Milne. Um, so it is fascinating. It is highly variable, as you can see, six to 12 cycles a minute, horses eight to 14. Do you have a question? Somebody's asking how you measure the fields. Are they electromagnetic? They are, I, I would say they are, but I mean, I could be completely wrong. These were measured um, by, I think very, they must've been sensors. You can, you can um, go online and look at, the research from Upledger, Viola Fryman did some work. Uh, she did it in 1971. It's called Study of Rhythmic Motion in the Living Cranium. Um, and John Upledger did a study in 1983 called Examination of the CRI in Long-Standing Coma and Neurologic Cases. So they are available to look at. I'm just sort of putting the, he the headlines up there. As, right. As you were, yeah. No, it's great. 
that's great with the references. Super. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this is this is now just bringing in more of the, the the longer, more stable rhythms that the biodynamic work orients to. So obviously we've got the CRI, which is six to twelve cycles in a human, eight to fourteen in a horse. Just stop me if, if there's a question. Yep. Don't worry. Um, the mid tide. Uh, so this is where the jargon sort of comes in, and we'll talk about why why it's called tide um, a, a little bit later on. So that's measured as about two and a half to three cycles a minute in the human. In the horse, I have um, sensed this movement, but it's longer because the animal is bigger uh, and slower. Like the horse's heart rate is slower. So things are going to be a bit slower, a bit wider. Um, the sense of this mid-tide it's, it's, is quite unique. It actually really feels like this pull, like a, a tide moving slowly up the body in, you know, a bit like that toroid, like that. Um, and this is like the embodying rhythm of the wider cycle, which is the long tide. So it kind of comes in and then it embodies these healing forces. Um, and the long tide is, uh, has actually been recorded. Uh, and I'm quoting my teacher, Michael Kern in London, um, on the depth of the seafloor, 100 second cycles, so 50 seconds one way, 50 seconds the other way. On a single cell protoplasm, there's actual footage, I have to find it. 50 seconds one way, 50 seconds the other way. So this 100 second cycle is present in everything. Mm. Imagine a kind of breathing motion and it kind of comes from like the outside in. It's quite fascinating. So the long tide is, it's, um, yeah, it's, uh, my teacher used to say to me, if you, if you have your hands on a horse or a human and you're thinking, is that the long tide? It probably isn't. <laughs> it, it really, <laughs> it really just, you can't put words to it it sort of just comes in and you're just left speechless in this presence of something far bigger. So, um, so this makes me think, in. especially with the word tide, yeah. you yes. know, there's, because the oceans have tides. I mean, they right. are visible, huge in some places, bigger than others and affected mm -hmm. by the moon. So since we are what 90 something percent water, yeah, like 70 to, I think we reduce a bit as we get older. Uh, uh, that's yeah. why I drink 16 ounces morning and night. Yep. yep. Um, but, <laughs> but it. my point being that if we are that much water, why wouldn't we experience a tidal shift in our bodily fluids, just like the ocean's tides? Fantastic, Wendy, exactly. Um, the What really draws me to the the true origins of osteopathy, which is then cranial osteopathy and biodynamic work is that at the core of this, we are orienting to the laws of nature all the time. You know, um, osteopathy began uh, with its origins in the Shawnee of America. Uh, the uh, doctor still worked on the Shawnee reservation. He was, uh, he spoke Shawnee fluently. He, he did, the osteopathic manipulative techniques through Shawnee bodywork, which is very shamanic and it's massage and it's breath work and it's narrative work. Um, he was 
fascinated and incorporated the fact that the, you know, the Shawnee were connected to everything, the sky, the water, the river, the clouds, the birds, the animals. Um, they very much felt their interconnectedness of life. And that's what I think fascinates me about this work is just as you said, why wouldn't there be a tidal rhythm in us as there is in nature? Really cool. So this is a quote from um, Franklin Silve. When you're in relationship to the craniosacral rhythm, you're in direct relationship to the suffering of the horse or human. The horse is um, my brackets in their form. This must be appreciated and respected. Biodynamic clinical work at the CRI level is via recognition and acknowledgement of suffering, resourcing work, and a reorient reorientation of the system to the deeper tidal forces and the stillness that underlies them. So um, the cranial sacral rhythm is, for example, the wave on top of the water in the mid tide is a bit deeper and the long tide is really deep. And none of that is ever lost in us. Uh, the practitioner's role is to help uncover or help the body awaken to that. Hey, you know, you've got this resource inside you. Let's tap into that. It's never lost. It's pretty cool. It, I find this, again, I find this fascinating that he talks about to suffering um, because uh, yes. in, I'm just listening. I, I do a lot. Of, I listen to books. But this one book that's talking about habits and cravings is talking about how even a, like I think protoplasm will either go toward food or away from toxin. And Maybe. that we are always either moving toward something or away yeah. from something. And it's, mm -hmm. um, and that, you know, we're, that suffering, this just strikes me as this is saying the same thing. We're either moving toward the flow of nature or, mm. a, you know, becoming disconnected. Yeah. 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 But what, what we forget or what we might not be able to feel is that we're never not connected. Right. But sometimes you can really feel disconnected. And so, you know, this work or even, you know, meditation work or breath work or heart math work can help you remember. Yeah, you're there. And um, to quote, uh, it's actually from Sills as well, when, because often the Buddha is, is um, or Buddhism is like, there is always suffering. That's a bit of a misquote. So how it should be sort of seen is there is suffering and it must be understood, hmm. uh, which I like. It's there. I see it. You know, I hear it. And I'm just going to hold this and help you reorient to your wholeness again on your own. You can do it. But there's a, you know, you're sort of holding a container. And that's, you know, where the horse, for example, that's um, disconnected, very anxious, had a lot of trauma, just holding them and listening, which is Really, in essence, what I'm doing with my hands is listening, but with that kind of non-judgmental, neutral awareness. And they can kind of just reorient to that. Which probably sounds like really um, woolly, but yeah, that's kind of how it works. <laughs> well, yeah, I just, like I said, it's fitting so well with uh, things that I'm reading and listening to that m match this idea. Um, yeah. Yeah. Right. 
I'm, I'm on board. Let's go. Let's go. Okay. So um, we're going to talk about uh, a bit more on the C- all about the CSF here. So Dr. Still, this guy here is the founder of osteopathy. Um, who I just spoke about, he obviously um, began this search into the human body, um, realizing that actually the medicine that he was studying, that he was a medical physician, wasn't working. So he started doing dissections. He started trying to find out how the body worked. And he um, really felt uh, upon dissections and upon working with people that the cerebral spinal fluid is one of the highest known elements that are contained in the body. And unless the brain furnishes this fluid in abundance, a disabled condition of the body will remain. He who is able to reason will see that this great river of life must be tapped and the withering field irrigated at once or the harvest of health be forever lost. Um, You know, he was, you know, in... America a long time ago it was all about farming so he was very poetic in his words as well yeah yeah so um you know he really said it was the highest known element along with the blood he was big on that and William Garner Sutherland was a student of his um and he uh developed cranial osteopathy and obviously Upledger then developed craniosacral therapy um, but he began to, in his later years, which I want to talk about because this leads to the biodynamic model, realize that there is something else in that fluid. Within that cerebral spinal fluid, there is an invisible element that I refer to as the breath of life. I want you to visualize this breath of life as a fluid within this fluid, something that does not mix, something that has potency as a thing that makes it move. Is it really necessary to know what makes the fluid move? Visualize a potency, an intelligent potency that is more intelligent than your own human mentality. Quite incredible. And yeah, go on. Were you going to ask something? No, I'm just, it's like, that's deep. (laughs) It's deep. It's deep. So um, in 1945, he was called to the bed of a man who was dying and, um, his fa- the man's family were around him and he had his hands on the man's system and this depth of stillness emerged into the room that he had never sensed before. And the man awoke and um, this peace passed over him and he got to say goodbye to his family and then he, he did pass away, but he passed away very peacefully. And he was like, whoa, you know, like, what is this? other thing that's come in and I haven't done anything. Um, The cranial osteopathy was still based on the osteopathic model initially where there was a lot of motion testing, um, you know, moving things to the barrier, checking range of motion. What he started to do from about 1945 through to 1948 until he passed away himself was to start listening more. And he started to teach his students to trust the inherent potency within rather than use blind force from without. So um, yeah, so his language shifted to this kind of tide, trust the tide, feel the potency, you know, it's doing its job. You just have to know your anatomy and be there. So um, that's kind of the beginning of the biodynamic work really. Um, He lived, uh, Sutherland lived in Florida Um, right by the ocean, always loved the ocean. Um, 
and I, I have to say the teachers who I've been lucky to learn from in London and Michael Shea, when I saw him in Germany, they've, they've felt this breath of life and um, they just talk about it with this awe and reverence. Like there's just no room for ego. It's, you're just listening to them going, wow, tell me more. You know, you know, they felt it and they've, you know, this work really takes you into the, the, the mystery of life. I mean, it's quite incredible. There's so much we don't know, isn't there? Yeah. I mean, before we turned the webinar on, we were talking about Castaneda and um, who we both love. And he takes you there, you know, yeah. he questions, you know, what you see is not always what's really there. And, and uh, Lauren Isley is one of my favorite writers who I've mentioned before. And he talks about the beginning of life our journey through life. And I love that stuff. So I, no wonder I'm obsessed with this. <laughs> so here we go, Wendy, the tide. Okay. Um, yeah, Please, yeah. So get there, somebody's asking if we can feel the tides ourselves. Well, you might be able to. You sort of, you have to get into a very sort of still, quiet place. Um, a lot of people think tide as, as a kind of movement like that. But remember, the tide is, um, I'm actually going to, now, I just want to stop sharing. So I want to put a time-lapse video up. Yeah. Is that how I do that? I just stop um, share. What you, what you need to do is stop, share, and then reshare the time-lapse video. Got it. Because okay. it's on a different, different screen. So you can't. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Here we go. Uh, actually, no, it's not on that one. Bear with me. <laughs> okay, you're doing fine. Doing fine. Now, uh, time, right? There is none. <laughs> no. Uh, I'm just going to make sure there is. Where is it? Ah, oh, bear with me. Yep. Got it. So while Emma's sorting this out, if anybody mm -hmm. has questions. Here we go. Oh, she's got it. Here we go. Uh, am I screen sharing? Yep. Yes. Here we go. This is time-lapse of an ocean tide. Oh, cool. Mm. And they're huge tides there. Uh-huh. So much bigger, much slower, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting because the clouds are still moving, but there's the water doesn't seem to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if the clouds didn't move, it'd be hard to notice. Quite incredible. So I just, um, <laughs> sharing back to the PowerPoint. Yep. Um, Sideshow, where are we? Here. Okay, so I just, because somebody's question was, can I feel the tides? Right. Um, it, 
we sort of think tides of like wet, you might be thinking of waves coming in the door. You might sort of get a sense of that, but the, the actual tide is very um, slow and deep and it can be sensed in a meditative state. However, you know, um, remember how, can, you know, you can go and sit and just have a, have a sense of it because this is very perceptual work. If that, if that kind of answers the question. Well, I, I think what you're saying is that in order to sense these things, you, you have to reduce all the external noise to such a degree that this becomes hearable, if you will. Yeah. And yeah, you know, that, that's, Feldenkrais always talked about um, reducing the effort. And as you reduce the effort, you increase the sensitivity level. So there is a Amazing. law called the Fechner-Weber law in terms of, you know, if you're, in terms of our sense, senses, and if it's a ratio, like one cup of flour to two cups of water, it's not an empirical number. So when we talk about feeling something as subtle as this, for me, what I'm hearing you say is that we, we have to be able to, to reduce the external mm. stimuli enough that we sort of increase the gain on these really subtle rhythms. And That's right, yeah. It requires, yeah. It requires discipline to do that. I mean, because most of us, like, like I said, when we started, I was talking about heart math and it wasn't until I actually started using the biofeedback system, how, how busy my brain is these days that I didn't realize, you know, it's what we don't notice. Right. Mm, yeah, that's right. Yeah. It really, I mean, gosh, the first three uh, seminars of the course in London was just orienting to stillness. Um, right. And, you know, we all freaked out by seminar five going, we can't do it. I can't feel anything. Oh. Um, and all the teachers were like, that's normal. It's okay. <laughs> Just because you can't feel it doesn't mean it's not there. Right. You know, so it's good to know because these are, it really does ask you to sort of change your perception um, beyond what we see in front of us. Um, so I'm just going to touch on this. Obviously, um, we had a massive supermoon last night. Oh, was it last uh, night? Mm, it's huge. I know Sinead McCann put a big poster up and I sat by the, I'm near the ocean. So I sat out on the beach and it was just amazing. Um, so obviously the ocean moves the tides and um, there's something else moving the tide with us, the flow, uh, the deeper flow, which is it's an intelligence beyond our own human uh, mentality. And that's why Sutherland was like, trust the tide. There's more power, more potency in the tide than the waves that come crashing upon the shore. Yeah. <clears throat> but all of those waves, this is the really cool bit, belong to the ocean. They know they're a part of that ocean. It's just a kind of surface thing. <laughs> Embryology, let's look at that. <laughs> So um, we're just going to touch a little bit on the embryology of cerebral spinal fluid. Um, and I know, Wendy, you love embryology, so I thought I'd have to put a bit in. Uh, so here we have the middle one, obviously, is the, the flexion of the embryo. Now, flexion only happens once the somites are closed up and the neuropore of the uh, neural tube has closed. 
before that, we're just, we're flat. And then once that's happened, flexion occurs and we become this beautiful spiral, um, which I love. So if we look at the image on the left, uh, we're looking at the back of the embryo. I don't know if you can see my cursor there. Yep. This is the spine, the enlarger of the spine. This is the, the tail end, the, the lower part of the spine. Up here is the open head end of the um, brain. And in this neural, what's called the neuropore, the neural groove, we've got amniotic fluid in the womb mixing with uh, the anlager, the beginning of your own cerebral spinal fluid. So there's this mixing happening between the fluids. And what is really cool, um, which uh, this amazing guy called Mauro Zapatera talks about, is that what has been created in the womb in the egg is a mini ocean environment from our origins in the ocean. So an ocean is happening as the beautiful amniotic fluid mixes with the precursor of the cerebral spinal fluid, and then it closes up and we have our own CSF. So you're in this mini ocean, whereas obviously evolutionary would have been in the ocean. Interesting, interesting way to think of it, yeah. A bit like you said, well, you know, um, there must be tidal rhythm in us because there's a tide right. in the ocean. You know, there's just this connection everywhere. It doesn't, it, you know. And this doesn't, I'm, and just to point out, this doesn't matter if it's a horse embryo or a human embryo because they are all in a sac. Yes. That Correct. Is so we all look like this, okay? And then differentiation starts to occur after the flexion starts to happen, okay? So um, basically the first 10 days, 10, 14 days, up to a month, we're pretty much looking the same. Yeah. And so you can imagine we're all this and then it's like, psh, you're gonna be a horse, you're gonna be a frog, you're gonna be a human. It's amazing, it's so cool. Um, what else was I gonna say there? I think I have something here. Yes, I have some points to make on those images. If you want me to go back to the images, let me know. Okay. Um, uh, so basically the anterior wall of the third ventricle, we're gonna, I'm gonna show you some of those, is the lamina terminalis of the embryological neural tube. So this image here, we would have had the neural tube going up here uh, and that's the end. And the ventricles, the lateral third and fourth, we're gonna see images of those in a minute, are the remnants of a hollow fluid-filled neural tube. Now ventricles of the brain we're talking about, right? Yes. Yes, they're the spaces in the brain. I think Katrina may have talked about, maybe Tracy Brooms talked about, we've had previous uh, craniosacral yep. bods on. Um, and this I thought was really cool. So rapid grain growth early on leads to lower hydrostatic pressure in the brain in the ventricles, enabling a lower gravity, thus a supportive fluid environment. So your brain is supported in almost an, a zero gravity environment. Wow. Oh, that's cool. Own little ocean. Um, so, you know, this, once, once this closes up here and that's growing quite a lot, flexion happens and the head comes down and there's this huge amount of growth happening here. Um, this, by the way, is the face just, um, these are called pharyngeal arches and your face is touching the heart. If you're into it, go on the heart math stuff. Amazing, isn't it? 
Yes. Your face is behind the heart like that. For a long time. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, origins are origins in oceans, the same gravity. Uh, CSF has the same gravity or the same pH as ocean water. Amniotic fluid and CSF are mixing. And then we have our own CSF as the tube closes over. So it's a replication of the ocean within the womb, which I think is very cool. Here are the ventricles. Um, some of you may have seen pictures of these. Uh, imagine these are spaces in the brain. They are actual spaces in the brain that were the remnants of the hollow neural tube. Um, so that's a front view looking front on. This is a side view, pretty cool. So they basically enable um, CSF to really cover the pituitary gland, which will be here, the pineal gland, <clears throat> uh, the interthalamic adhesion, the hypothalamus, the thalamus, um, the frontal, temporal, occipital lobe, down to the fourth, uh, sorry, the cerebellum, and then down here to the spinal cord. So it's just this beautiful, supportive uh, environment, and it just holds the brain. And obviously it goes around the outside too. So, so basically then you have that neural tube that's open and as it mm -hmm. closes, it leaves a gap, which is what turns into the ventricles. Yes. And at yes. the same yes. time, it then forms a second pillow, if you will, around the outside of the brain so that the brain is totally supported in fluid during development. Yes. Yeah, so that there's always a fluid around the brain and, um, and you just think of a kind of yeah, they kind of wash the brain, it clean, cleans the brain out, it then provides nutrients to the brain. We've got lots of fun facts coming up. <laughs> okay. So the vent um, shape of the ventricles yeah, then, just, just to kind of go back for a sec, the shape yes. of the ventricles uh, varies from species to species? Uh, well, that's a very good question. I, I've only really seen horse and human myself, okay. um, but it's a very good question. Uh, how similar is horse and human? Uh, like I've got a photo actually later on. It's pretty similar, but obviously, you know, the horses, it's sort of more, it, there's a little, looks like there's a little less room, but there's plenty there. I mean, right. um, we haven't got the frontal, the frontal lobe, the, the neocortex as well in the horse. So that's just, it looks a little different, but it's there. So essentially that, again, that's, it's very, very similar in development and in sh shape fitting to that shape and size of brain. Yeah, it's it's amazingly, amazing piece of architecture that the spaces remain. As the brain grows, the, the hydrostatic pressure lowers so that that fluid retains um, this kind of gravity to support and nourish the brain. Because if we didn't have the brain being held in a grab, in this beautiful bathe, this, this fluid, every time I move my head, I'd hear clonk, clonk, clonk. Oh yeah. You know, that would be awful. <laughs> it would be awful. <laughs> it would, it would be terrible. You'd be and like, was that me? No, it's you. <laughs> but that also <laughs> helps explain with head injuries, which, you know, that's actually probably a topic I should find someone to talk about. Um, you know, head injuries and in riders or anyone yes. for that matter, yes. you, you basically, that brain has wound up hitting the side of the skull and either gotten bruised or damaged or whatever, because it hydrostatic couldn't keep it floating. 
Well, you have obviously the, the reciprocal tension membrane that is also this beautiful kind of membrane that's in tension that keeps it, you know, so if you have a, a nasty concussion, the concussion goes through the membrane rather directly to the brain, unless it's a severe brain injury, obviously. And craniosacral therapy is fantastic for concussions. Just the Upledger did has done some amazing work on uh, American footballers right. who have concussion that can continue to play, but also repeat, repeated concussions from boxing, for example, horse falls that are not treated. Uh, you are at high risk of, of, of developing issues, for example, in CSF flow. Um, in boxes, it can be Parkinson's perhaps, um, neurodegenerative, because you just think that constant concussion and it's not being able to settle and rectify. So if you fall off, if you've been knocked out, go and get yourself to a craniosacral therapist. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm going to talk about the um, choroid plexus, because I don't know if anyone's thinking at this point, how does it, how does it, how is it made in the brain, the CSF? So um, these beautiful little things called the choroid plexuses, um, which to me, I get the sense they look like coral or little seaweed. Um, basically, the interchanges between the blood and the CSF, not a manufacturing of the fluid. Uh, you would have a hard time replenishing the waters of the brain through such a process. It is a mechanism for the interchange between all the fluids of the body. Put something in the CSF and you'll find it in the blood later. And that makes sense. Nothing is just made out of nowhere. It is uh, an interchange. It's very, it's like alchemy. So there's this alchemical process that happens and then CSF comes from the blood. And I will, here's some beautiful photos of like uh, coral and anemone. That's what I feel the choroplexy look like. And here is a um, more close-up version. See these red things here? Mm-hmm. That's the choroplexy. Uh so they are involved in the production of cerebral spinal fluid. We have a bit of, we have arrows here uh, directing um, where it goes. So it starts off, it gets produced in the lateral ventricles, which are here. Here's the lateral horn. And then it comes down into the third ventricle here. And it goes down here. I think that's the aqueduct, aqueduct of Silvius. <laughs> The brain doesn't know that, but that's what we've named it. Um, And it goes down there and then um, it goes into the fourth ventricle, which also has its own choroid plexi, which makes sense. The the little brain, the cerebellum, has 50% more neurons than the cerebrum. So it's a, it's a, there's a lot that's not known about this. A lot of people say it's a lot to do with motor control, but I think there's more to it than that. Uh, And then obviously it goes down to, through the spinal cord uh, bathing the spinal cord, and we're talking about the outside of the dura, inside the dura. CSF is not limited just to the brain and the spinal cord. I just want to make that clear. It does leak out through nerve root sheaths in the spinal cord. Um, I touch on this later as well. The composition of the ground substance of fascia is the same composition as CSF. Very, very related. Um, also, um, fractured noses or fractured plates up here, mm-hmm. you can actually produce a cerebral spinal fluid leak, um, because it actually comes down and bathes the olfactory nerve, 
which comes down through here where your ethmoid is. It's very, very thin. So, um, and, and it tastes quite salty, funnily enough, a bit like seawater. I was gonna say, it's a bit like an ocean, right? A bit like a little ocean. Here, here's some horse brains. Um, so you can see, perhaps the bottom right one might look a little better. Here's your um, lateral ventricles will be here. You have to imagine the spaces. Uh, and so the CSF comes here, it goes around here. That's your interthalmic adhesion. Imagine your third ventricles here. Okay, and then it goes down the aqueduct and bays the um, cerebellum with the fourth ventricle and down the spinal cord. So um, yeah, of course the horse's head is more like a cantilever, isn't it? So it, it, it will look a little bit different. It will seem a little more bunched up. Um, and I'm, whenever I am working on a horse that has had um, pullbacks or head injuries or is looking very tight and strange through the head, I'm gonna be um, checking in with the ventricles, with the lateral ventricles. How do they feel? Do they need a bit of um, help? Do they need some attention? So are those pictures okay, Wendy? They sort of give yeah, you an idea. Yeah, you know, and I just want to point out the size of the cerebellum in the horse relative to the, the mm. entire mass of the brain. And then yeah. if you go back to the human picture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, where are we? Yeah. Yeah. The size of the cerebellum relative to the mass of the human brain. Yeah. It's, so we're sitting like that and the horse is sitting like that. Right. right. But just the per percentage wise, mm. You know, if the cerebellum may do other things, but it's certainly motor control and the mm. importance of motor control in the horse relative to mm. cognitive thought, relative to frontal lobe, you know, like, cause there's not right. a lot of frontal lobe, but there's a huge cerebellum. It's huge, isn't it? And in fact, I don't know if you've heard of Dr. Stephanie Valberg, but she's done some amazing work on horses with shivers. Um, they did do, I think, cross sections or MRIs of the cerebellum in these horses and there were lesions, uh, which sort of makes sense because with uh, shivers, it does make sense to me. Uh, with shivers, that kind of thing that, where their legs going that, because both the flexors and the extensors are going on at the same time, there's a, a, a crossfire, a mis, miscommunication happening from the cerebellum down the spinal cord, from the motor cortex. So, you know, whether that's head injury or neurodegenerative, um, to me, I, I would have to think what's happened to the cerebral spinal fluid flow? Is it not getting there? Is that why we have neurodegeneration? Uh, if there's been a, a trauma, is there enough getting there? Has there been shock to the dura? Mm. Like Very interesting thoughts. This is a brain, a horse brain of a dissection I attended in 2015 in England. And um, uh, somebody very kindly opened up. There we go, there's a space. You can, you're looking down at the top of the head, that is a lateral ventricle there. This is a small horse brain. Yeah, I think they were, because in England, a lot of the horses, they, were, um, they weren't sort of fresh cadavers. They'd been on ice a bit. It was, they were, they were all pretty small. Yeah, it was actually a dissection workshop with Gillian Higgins. From, oh, wow. Uh, yeah, yeah, she had a, it was fun and very cold. <laughs> yeah. So, now I'm going to talk about the bird. So Dr. Sutherland um, talked about, if you look at this picture in the top left, he talked about the left, the ventricles looking a bit like a bird. If you think about the third ventricle here and the fourth ventricle is like the body of a bird. 
And then the lateral ventricles look a bit like the wings of a bird. And actually when you, in craniosacral world, when you are, have your hands on the head, they kind of move, the lateral ventricles move a bit like a bird taking off hmm. in an inhalation phase. And I put these totem poles down here. Um, this was, in, uh, Michael Shea inspired me when I was writing up this webinar because I did an advanced course with him in Germany two years ago. And he talks about the bird on top of a totem pole um, in, in Native Americans, uh, you know, in their law. And the bird, obviously the eagle represents um, the illumination, higher consciousness, um, intuition and insight and of course the bird is on the top of the head and the bird is on the top of the um is that me you oh that's me <laughs> sorry i thought i had a time off. to stop <laughs> so the bird is on the top of the totem pole and the bird is actually in the top of our head so i love that i love that connection uh and what the bird represents in native american teaching And this, this is a lovely um, quote by Lauren Isley, which is, uh, if there is magic on this planet, it is contained within water. And anyone that's a, um, done a workshop with me or I've done a presentation, I usually put this one on it. Lauren is an amazing writer and his books, if ever you get them, are just a collection of beautiful essays. Um, he, he was traveling around America in the 40s and that and he wrote this um and I absolutely believe it everything uh water is this communication medium it's a fluid medium it's the fluid forces that create us we don't survive without water mm -mm. um no so here's some cerebral spinal fluid fun facts <laughs> so if we go back just quickly uh to Look at the area this fluid covers, the pituitary, the pineal, and the third ventricle. Um, <clears throat> here's your pituitary, here's your pineal. Okay, pituitary, and third ventricle. So it's covering all of these beautiful areas. Um, What's really cool is in that third ventricle area, the, the, the CSF moves in a dynamo action, like a spiral, like a galaxy. Wow. Yeah. Uh, the lateral ventricles, which are the wings of the bird, span the cerebrum, covering the occipital, frontal, temporal, and parietal lobes. Um, in deep meditation, the theta and delta waves that start to happen actually assist in CSF production. So you know, not just, you don't, I'm not asking everyone to start meditating deeply, but having good sleep is so important, isn't it? Yeah, because we go through all the different cycles in sleep. Yeah, yeah. Um, so CSF wasn't obviously just discovered by um, Dr. Still, the osteopath. It's been well known for thousands of years by um, ancient traditions. The Ida and Pingala are represented by the pituitary and pink pineal glands. Um, is there a question? No, somebody has to go, but oh, I'll cool. watch the replay. <laughs> oh, yeah, cool, cool. Um, so uh, that's uh, one that's um, ancient 
it, it, is it Sanskrit? The idea and Pingala are like the snakes like that. And they oh. go up the body. Yeah, yeah, I've got an image, yeah. Um, the third ventricle is known by the, as the Crystal Palace by the Taoists. Um, as mentioned, the tidal flow within the CSF is governed by the moon. <clears throat> and the third ventricle in Chinese medicine is the space where the yin and yang energies come to form perfect harmony in the upper Dantian. And in Sanskrit, the third ventricle was known as the cave of Brahma. And I, I did look up that actually a little bit. And this is the center of perception and insight in ancient Sanskrit. Uh, it's a complex world of alchemy and wisdom. Um, the cave of Brahma exists in the fourth dimension. Our spiritual connection is our energetic link to oneness. Group thought forms, illusions, or realities on a global scale also have receptor sites in the third ventricle or the cave of Brahma that link us to the outside world. Any significant damage to this area of the brain will affect our perceptual relationship to the world. Um, it's worth hey, noting please. that, yeah, go on. Well, you know what's the most fascinating thing to me is these people all found those ventricles way, 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 way back when, okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't exactly. talk about them unless so you know cool. they're there. So, yep. so how uh, how do they do it? Did they dissect or uh, were they able exactly. to sense this during deep meditation? Yeah, I thought exactly the same thing. I, I love it. It's, it's worth noting that traumatic events, there's, it, there's always a sense of time slowing down or standing still. The cave of Brahma is involved. So this third ventricle is actually, yes, from an anatomical point of view, it looks really cool. And, but to me, I like the other stuff as well. You know, the fact that it, it's, it has a dynamo-like action, that it actually takes you in, it's your I am consciousness. I love it. <laughs> Here you go. Here's some pictures of some universes. So you can get an, an idea of that dino action. Now, spirals exist everywhere in the universe, all around us. There's spiraling in the CSF and there's spiraling in the blood. The blood, before the heart is formed, spirals of its own accord. Once the heart is formed, the, blood, the heart gives it that extra spiral dynamo action around the body. Um, okay, have so to now the in, question right? is, is the spiral going in the same direction in the northern hemisphere versus the southern hemisphere? That's a very good question. Maybe I should meditate on that. Maybe uh, that's why it's taken me so long to realize that it's not summer. Now it's winter over here. <laughs> yeah, no, it's very confusing when you go down under and, and it's the opposite. So... Um, yeah. <laughs> Here's a picture of the Ida and Pingala two snakes and this midline is Shashumna and obviously the chakras of uh, spiraling centers we could have a whole webinar on that but I don't know enough about it so I stop just show you a picture <laughs> and horses have chakra centers as well they do uh, I'm sure Sinead I think you had on the other week yeah. she knows a lot more about them I, I heard they have an extra one and why wouldn't they because horses are awesome of course <laughs> <laughs> but this whole concept of spiraling fluids, uh, rhythms, it, you know, it's fascinating that it's from as far back as ancient times and we're understanding the anatomy of it now. And you have, it just, you know, whether or not they knew about that, that's just kind of mind blowing. 
Okay. Yeah. For me, I think we should, we should hold both. Yes. It's good to have the anatomy, but let's look at the mysticism behind that because that to me is the, is, is the mystery of life of what connects us to everything. I love it. This is. Well, and that they had such a deep awareness of that then. Yeah. Yeah. That kind of ancient knowledge, that knowing that, um, you know, the perception isn't, you know, like Castaneda talks about it. Right. Things don't change the way you look at them do. Yep. Does, you know. Um, this is just another picture of the cave of Brahma, which is the third ventricle. And Alex Gray, gotta love him. Look at these beautiful, beautiful drawings. Uh, just, uh, you know, the, the one on the right is, is a person in meditation. That third eye center, you know, the third eye, the cave of Brahma. Um, a big, a big area of insight, knowingness. Hmm. So I'm just going to talk a little bit about um, the degeneration of the choroplexy. Um, my mother has um, Alzheimer's and uh, I saw her in England about in 2015. And I did a session with her. I wasn't obviously trained in humans then, but I did a session and something didn't feel right. I asked her to go and get a brain scan and she had um, significant uh, shrinking of the brain. So when I came back to study in 2017, I actually gave her some craniosexual sessions. Um, not enough. So I just, it's hard when you're doing family, but yeah. I was trying to get her to see someone, but certainly after the session, she was more lucid because I, I'm a, a big believer in that um, with the degeneration of the choroplexy, uh, which it, it has been found in people with neurodegenerative disorders, there's going to be a reduction in CSF production and flow. And that CSF is so important in clearing out and, and giving nutrients to the brain and messages to the hypothalamus and the thalamus. Um, yeah, so... Uh, Where do glial but, cells fit in? What's that? Where do glial cells fit in? Well, uh, I, I have to say I'm I'm not... I don't know a huge amount of them. I know the glymphatics play a big part in talking to um, the CSF. The CSF certainly sends sure. impulses to the nerve cells. So I feel like there's very much, if you think about the fabric of space, I think there's very much a link there. Uh, they're very interconnected with regards to clearing out communication. Um, Ted, Ted Wanvia, uh, he's, he's the guy, he talks about brain stars. He does apparently some very cool advanced courses on that. Yeah. Because glial cells are kind of like, you know, they used to just think of them as placeholders, but they're starting to realize they're way more important, but I don't know enough about them to. I love that. I, I love how, um, like, that's what we do. Don't we? That people are like, Oh yeah, that's just, you know, it just does that. And then someone goes, actually, I reckon it does more. Yeah. <laughs> and then we're like, okay, let's rewrite everything. It actually does. Um, but yeah, I certainly, uh, in neonates, for example, the, um, the lymphatic system isn't fully, is, uh, is it the glial cells? No, actually, I'm going to stop saying that because I've got that mixed up. Forget it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but basically the, CS the CSF does kind of come out through the arachnoid villi at the top of the, the cranial vault and kind of flows out the back and comes back up. So there's just this huge interchange between the glymphatic system, the glial cells. Um, if you think about the 
the, the communicative fluid, the golden fluid in the CSF actually provides nutrients to nerve cells as well. So it's really, because the nerve cells need some juice. They need that battery. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So just touching on what you said about head trauma, um, uh, the generation of choroplexae uh, has been found in conditions such as dementia, Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. Um, with horses in Cook that have Cushing's, I will always do work around the temporals and the sphenoid bone, basically the bones of the cranial vault, because if that sphenoid bone, for example, is, is not moving in the cranial rhythm, then the pituitary gland will not be able to rock and, and do its function properly. And not only that, I'm gonna be checking the CSF flow. How does it feel? How do those lateral ventricles feel? How does that third ventricle feel? Um, and often, certainly on horses that are given perhaps, this is only my experience. I, you know, I'm not making a statement or anything. When they're on Prescend or Pergolite, um, the dural tube feels very leathery, almost starved of fluid it kind of you feel like things are kind of stagnating a bit mm. i feel like there's always room for healing that there's always a potential for health um you know uh so it's always worth sort of seeing if you can help that michael morgan if people want to research a bit more on um his uh techniques on improving alzheimer's he actually did some great research uh, this was daily CV bore technique. So CV bore is a hand underneath the occiput with some pressure up towards the third, fourth ventricle, um, basically getting a pump going, in, inviting more CSF production. Um, and these people started to remember, which is quite amazing. Uh, and then obviously we talked about impacts of recurrent head trauma and concussions. Um, humans, horses, uh, if I think about horses that have had falls in races, uh, humans have had falls, and then jockeys that have falls and never get themselves looked at. <laughs> now we're finally starting to recognize the damage done by head trauma. And, you know, you have to be grateful for the footballers that have come forward and said, wait a second, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely really look after your brain because it's not just your brain in there you know it's uh that uh battery juice that's furnishing your brain and keeping you alive um we want to help that go work properly so here's some more cool facts about csf it's so important for system health so our brain produces about 150 milliliters of csf three to four times a day you make a total of probably about that much a day in, in a day yeah wow yeah. Uh, CSF is always at net zero volume. So it's the same volume wherever it is, which I think is pretty cool. I, can you speak? What do you mean by that? So it's not going to have like a heap up in the brain and none in the spinal cord. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 So it always be the same, providing this kind of um, beautiful, like fluid bathed environment. Uh, CSF goes all the way through to the sacrum. Uh, even though in the spinal cord uh, terminates at around L2, this is in humans, the reservoirs of CSF lie in the lumbosacral waterbeds. That is a um, craniosacral term. So you can, 
if, for example, on a horse, um, maybe they have a head injury and they don't want me to touch the, up there, I'll work at the sacrum. I'll be at the sacrum and orient there. How can we improve CSF flow? How is the CSF flow up the spinal cord? I love it. So it's, it's all the way down there. Spiraling in the CF, CSF, we talked about that. Spiraling in the blood has its own momentum. And to me, that just implies this uh, intelligence. Uh, CSF goes all the way to the sacrum. Sorry, I just mentioned that. Uh, in something called the corda equina, which is the horse's tail, funnily enough. <laughs> we know it's a signaling medium. It's providing um, signals to, uh, like you said, probably the gl glial cells, the glymphatics. Um, the, the way it talks so uh, intimately with the pituitary and the pineal and the, the thalamus and the hypothalamus. Um, good sleep, we've talked about that, really, really important. Um, they're, yes, they're discovering more and more of importance of good sleep. The question yeah. is good, you know? I know, I, I'd say I probably don't get enough sleep. How is your sleep? Yeah, uh, well, I've started doing heart math before I go to sleep. Oh, great, so you're on it. <laughs> Best sleep. <laughs> Better. And the, <laughs> These are a couple of things I've already touched on that it's not limited to the brain and spinal cord. It ex exits via nerve sheaths that's spinal nerves. Uh, the ground substance of fascia has the same composition as CSF. Again, an intelligent fluid medium, which you know you've touched on CSF, uh, fascia a lot, especially with surefoot. How um, that communication just goes all the way through the horse from standing on a pad. It's quite amazing. So if if they look at the composition of CSF, I know this is a little technical. Um, mm. What is like, is it equivalent when you say it's the same ground substance as fascia? Think of that a sort of viscous fluid. Oh, okay, okay. Um, yeah, saying. yeah. To me, I mean, they've, if you go on the craniosacral trust website, there's often really cool articles about it's it's uh, people starting to see the um, relationship between space and what they would say is dark matter and fascia, this web, this interconnected web of the space and the planets and the interconnected web of the universe that's within us. So it's like, this is where we start. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. we could be in a giant celestial body. We don't know. <laughs> Just putting it out there. <laughs> so I want to touch on the pineal gland, cerebral spinal fluid, and DMT. This is so cool. I read about this after listening to Mauro Zapatera, who he just is a biodynamic craniosacral therapist who studied the CSF. And um, you can look at his YouTube videos. They're really, really cool. Um, so DMT... The pineal gland, it's, it's not, not a lot know, is known about it. Mm -hmm. All I can say is please look after it. If you're using fluoride toothpaste, stop, because fluoride doesn't do help the pineal gland work very well. Mm -hmm. I haven't used fluoride toothpaste for three years, um, and I'm just careful about it being in the water too. So, um, yeah, so it, it, in, we know it sort of gives us our sense of direction, <clears throat> but there's something else that's DMT. And this is really, really cool. It's produced by the choroplexy and the pineal gland. It produces melatonin from tryptophan and also DMT. 
This is found in plants used for sacred ceremony. DMT enables us to access dreamscapes when sleeping. It is activated at birth and also at death or near death. Extracellular DMT has been found in cerebral cortex following cardiac arrest. This is very interesting. Um, it's uh, obviously melatonin is a big, big part of getting good sleep, but the uh, DMT is almost like you could look at it as a gateway into dreamscape, into coming into as you die from the womb into the and get born into your new life when you come out of the womb, and also as you die into your physical body and go into your next life after you leave this world, it's almost like a, a transformative gateway. You could look at look at it like that. That's well, and tryptophan turns into serotonin, so you know that's your feel good. It's why yeah. you have you know you have your turkey dinner and you want to <laughs> nap. Okay, there's a lot of tryptophan in turkey. Um, and is that really? Oh yeah. Oh, wow. oh yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, no, turkey's really, that's why Thanksgiving dinner, everybody eats their turkey. And <laughs> <laughs> I, that is a fact I did not know. Wow. Oh, yeah, well, so cool. American Thanksgiving <laughs> down there, right? Oh uh, um, yeah. 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 The, um, some of the, just kind of touch on this for a moment. Um, you know, that they're finding that if you have any LEDs like glowing alarm clocks or, you know, um, televisions that have little lights on them, that that can disrupt sleep. Um, yeah, that, that makes they're, sense. They're yeah. talking about, I can't sleep. If there's like lights, I have to cover them or whatever. Same. Um, but, yeah. you know, we need that darkness for the mm. pineal gland to work properly for the whole melatonin system to work from it's you're you're waking up very old science from my master's degree which is kind of old from <laughs> six um but that was how i scored points was understanding the pineal gland um brilliant brilliant i love that uh, but it's yeah so it's all hooked with your sleep melatonin you're feeling yeah. good and so when you're sleep deprived you know everybody knows how you never want to deal with a sleep deprived mother uh, no, um, no. But you know, we know sleep deprivation exists in horses. Um, I know yeah. from my years working and racing. Of you froze. Uh -oh. Here, where we started at three o'clock in the, um, and they often were tired. They weren't sleeping enough, or um, there was always noise in the stable. And there's certainly been research on um, jet lag in horses causing oh, I'm sure. Mm. They're, they're going to, but um, sleep deprivation, the one time I so clearly saw it with my horses was when I went to a clinic in Tennessee and they were stabled at a showgrounds where they were starting the show at 10 o'clock at night. It was a mm. 10 walker show. And so I went off to the hotel and got a great night's sleep. And when I got back to the barn, I had two pissed off horses that had, <laughs> they're like, don't no sleep. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I was like, so I, totally get the sleep deprived horse story i'm yeah I'm, they really need their sleep they need well you know yourself i mean obviously we put them in new environments and they don't feel safe to sleep so they won't sleep yeah. all of that's especially to the horse i think very important um i've got a really trippy uh, image coming up about okay. the dmt ready yeah wow that's pretty cool i just thought i'd add that you've got to explain this I, well, I can't really, you know, unless anyone's done hallucinogenics and they've seen that, um, which I may have a long time ago. Um. 
here we go. <laughs> here we go. Here we I go. just had Better to because you know, <laughs> yes, th this is actually a lake in uh, West Victoria. Um, but I wanted to read this. Imagine your connection to the fluid that surrounded you as an embryo, to the fluid that is bathing the inside and outside of your entire central nervous system right now the totality of all the fluid in all the oceans that have ever been present in history. Our connection. Beautiful. And that's a quote from Rumi. You are not a drop in the ocean. You are the entire ocean in a drop. Oh. Mm. Thank you for listening. Very cool. So someone's asking if you can explain a bit about the actual process of a treatment. Oh yeah, all the webinars are on the Surefoot Equine YouTube channel. You can go there and find them. So you can definitely rewatch this because it is recording. I've got it right. Um, so, you know, can you, can you kind of, I know that having done a little bit of cranial work that it takes training because it takes training to become sensitive enough to sense this. But can you describe a little bit about the actual process of a treatment for a horse? Yeah, I mean, uh, obviously I will assess the horse, you know, I do a general assessment and um, get a history of a horse, watch the horse move. Um, uh, uh, it depends on the situation. I'll give an example of a horse I was asked to see on Sunday and she had, she was highly anxious. I had, I think had been read by an animal communicator as well, who said that she was probably the most sensitive horse she'd ever been asked to read. And um, I just felt you have to assess what am I going to do before I start the session? Shall I do an assessment or is this session literally going to be helping this horse to come into their body? this was one of those sessions. So I really, this, I do bring the owner in a lot these days if they're open to it. I didn't have the owner hold the horse. Um, the owner had a lot of stuff running for her at the time. So I had her just standing nearby and I had her orienting to her breath. Um, in this session, I really just, first thing I do before I do anything is checking with myself. How is my breathing? Can I feel my feet? And then, you know, obviously I'm going to introduce myself to the horse quietly and I might put my hand on the horse and then my attention goes immediately back to myself. How am I doing? How is my breath? It's, it's very much, um, it's a very relational, a co-regulated state. And then um, it's just through perceptual and palpation skills over time, you get a sense of, uh, does this horse feel like they're in their body? Uh, is there a sense that the horse has good, uh, what we call um, tidal flow going up the neural tube? So with this particular horse, it really was a case of, with the biodynamic work, this is, this is probably one of the key things, is I would put my hand on the horse and take the whole horse into my awareness rather than focus on one bit. And you know how horses are very much nonverbal and very sensory, they can sense you suddenly taking all of them into their awareness. I did do a workshop in New South Wales in February, which actually just gave some of these little pointers to some, uh, an awesome group of people who went away and came back and said, this is great. Is, you know, when you go and see your horse in the paddock, just 
take us take a step back and take a soft look at all of them rather than the agenda you might have walked in there with like their head their foot how's that back is is that still what's this you know just think of all of them because they like to be seen and and felt as a whole and and then i'm really going to listen with my hands and my whole body what's needed and the horse may need to walk during the session and that's fine i'll walk with the horse the horse must know that they're allowed to move Sometimes horses will just need to do that the whole session. Some will just settle um, <clears throat> and then drop into a deep place. Some horses go into a very deep, what we call a still point, which is like a cessation, but not a stopping of uh, activity in the body, like a reset. And talking about those tides, uh, there's some biodynamic people in America have sensed a 20 minute tide, <laughs> 20 minutes. So that's obviously, I don't know, 10 minutes out and 10 minutes in. True. But uh, horses, I did sense that once on a horse probably about three months ago. He went into, I'm not kidding, a 25-minute still point. And I just got to witness it. And it was amazing. I just felt like there's something at work here in this horse's body, fixing things. It's healing things. Uh, I just need to hold the space. Yeah, it, it's a real privilege to do the work. It really is. Well, I don't feel it's, it's kind of doing non-doing. <laughs> Hope that doesn't sound too woolly for whoever asked the question. Oh, somebody's saying from having had CST work on myself, this webinar explains what I'm experiencing. Ah, good. So does this person feel like sometimes they're just stepping into a bath of hot water or a bath of warm water? That's what it can sometimes feel like. So, so, so much of this work, it's at such a subtle level. And, and again, you know, I know we've talked about this, but the, one has to become disciplined in the ability to be okay with, a, if you will, a sense of nothingness. Absolutely right. Um, in fact, I'll quote one of my teachers, Michael Kern, during a practical that we did, he was like, you put your hands on the client and listen and get used to not knowing, become friends with it. Uh, it's good, it's important that I know my anatomy, absolutely. But once my hands are on, let's just put that behind the curtain and just be present. It's really about presence more than anything. Yes, this, the, the person said she's suspended in water. The one who's oh said, beautiful yeah that's exactly it yeah and so it's yes there's that combination and this is so true of so many people that are really good at what they do they have a, a deep understanding of the fundamentals um the practice of developing the habits that are needed and and the anatomy is a habit i mean you have to learn the anatomy so that you're not having to worry about the anatomy it becomes yeah. habitual in terms of understanding it so that yeah. you can let go of that part of the process and then go into the art of it, if you will. And that's the listening. And, you know, this is so true of, of if you talk to any artist or any uh, sports person, anybody who's really good at what they do, that 
that is what they do. They have, a, they have practiced the fundamentals so that they don't have to think about them. Yeah, it's true. We go back to the fundamentals all the time. Right. And that opens you to be available to um, what's in front of you. You're not having to think about, oh, where's the, you know, humorous and what's happening with the, Mm -hmm. and that's what really the, the practice is, is getting comfortable with that. That's part of the training is getting comfortable with that Mm -hmm. part so that you, it's just, it's a habit. It happens. You don't even think about it. It doesn't require a lot of thought. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I sort of think that's why I kind of love uh, the surefoot work and the Tellington touch work because it is a lot of silently, neutrally observing Mm -hmm. and the horse has a choice. You know, I'm going to offer you this. You want to stand on it. I have, and the horse stands on on the pad for a minute for 10 seconds, blinks, maybe has a look at it, walks off, something's changed. I, I still, I do pads quite, I, I would say 50% of the work I do. It all depends. It depends on the horse. Absolutely. But it can be very useful. I, I had to use one the other day. Um, we did a session on the horse. He was uh, very anxious. So no pads at the beginning, but he struggled to back up with, he backed up okay with right hind, but not left hind. So I was like, you know what, let's put him in the arena. We'll offer him a couple of pads. He uh, stood with his hind legs for five seconds on the physio pad and walked off and then he backed up fine. Ah, wow. I was That's like, cool. there you go. Bit of blood flow. Yeah. <sighs> I don't know. I can't explain that. So somebody's saying I took an equine cranial sacral course this past year and I need a lot of practice to feel, but sometimes I feel a very light, subtle pulse. Is that the flow of CSF? Um, well, it may be, uh, you, the rhythm is like you said, it's kind of eight to 14 seconds. I I'm probably the wrong person to ask that because I'm, I orient to the deeper, slower, stiller forces. Um, just the, the best thing to do, all I can, is only advice given to me is if you feel something, just notice it, make it, just notice, uh, because as soon as you put your attention and a label on it, you've lost it yep uh and then your attention's on the area for sure <laughs> and it's and that's the hardest part but that's really to, to uh that we don't even realize that our brain is already making decisions about what we feel instead of just feeling yes um, that's exactly right yeah uh, and you know these you know our horses are the horse's hands are their mouth and nose. These, we're very sensory, uh, we're tactile. You put your hands on, we get interested in a movement. Oh, what's that? I'm gonna follow that. Well, this is very much, this is more subtle than up ledger. It's more subtle than uh, cranial osteopathy. We are noticing, I'm kind of following from a distance, if that makes sense mm-hmm. to what's going on. So if you uh, were to give everybody that's listening an assignment Something that they could do <laughs> or, or not, you know, the act of not doing to yeah. help enhance their, their listening. What would that be? Help enhance their listening. Um, I would, it's probably what I give everybody now. And that is to orient to some belly breathing around your horse. Um, drop the agenda with whatever you're doing, 
Breathe into your belly on your in-breath and on your out-breath, let the air go down your legs, through your feet into the ground. And that's as taken from a beautiful teacher of mine, Michael Shea, who's a student of the Dalai Lama. And breathing into your belly keeps the wind below the heart. The heart is the fire element. So we want the wind below there. And I have seen horses just shift when their caretaker, if I'm working on them, and you can almost sense the, uh, the caretaker's just heads busy and the horse is anxiously nibbling them. I'm like, let's just orient to your breath for a second. And as soon as they do that, the horse just, oh, because they're so reflective. They're so like, oh, the vibes have stopped. I'm going to, I like this. To me, horses are like Zen meditators. They really, you know, you see them hanging out. They're having this silent communication. They're in this deep stillness. They're accessing their pineal gland probably. <laughs> um, I've actually got a quote from Anne Wales I just wanted to share with you. So Anne Wales is another, is a, a powerhouse in craniosacral world along with Viola Fryman. She was a student of Sutherland and she said, a successful response from a cerebral spinal fluid is an intensified interchange between all the fluids of the body. It is definitely evident that the reaction is systemic and includes the whole body, even within the bones. So if uh, who, whoever it was who, are, who said it's like being suspended in a body of water, it's like the CSF has had ignition within the fluids and that medium has just gone throughout the whole body. So cool. Well, Emma, if you just unshare your screen, we'll wrap this up. Okay. Another yeah, very deep and fascinating webinar. Thank you for letting me ramble on, Wendy. <laughs> Thank you for your insights, though. I love that. I love that you can just relate to every person that you have on your webinar. You, it's great. Yeah. I, uh, thank you. Um, sometimes I've, I've surprised myself that I've had the breadth of education that I've been fortunate to have in so many ways. This is why you're doing hundreds of them. Because yeah. <laughs> you, can, you can interview anyone and you're like, aha, I can bring something to this. And you do, it's fantastic. <laughs> well, thank you all so much for joining us. This is Food for Thought now on your, uh, for us evening. And um, we can all uh, think of our CSF as we float off into dreamland tonight. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Wendy. Thank you, everyone. It's great to see you. Just remember, you can find this and all the other webinars on the Surefoot Equine YouTube channel. If you subscribe, you'll get a notification when I put the webinar up. And tomorrow is the Saddle Fit webinar. It's going to be fun. I've known Andy forever. And when uh, we have a lot of inside jokes. <laughs> oh, I look forward to it. All right. Take care. Good night. Bye. Bye. Bye.